Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Sugar, Clinical Director and Founder of Behavioral Psych Studio in New York and Los Angeles, a practice that specializes in DBT and CBT. My team and I believe strongly in the principles espoused by Dr. Marshall Linehan, the founder of DBT, and we started our podcast to let you in on the secret. Think of DBT as a set of skills or tools that usher you toward the life you want to be living. We are here to help make those skills more accessible, providing real-world relatable examples and applications. While we hope you're able to use these skills to help you improve your life, this podcast and the content in it is not intended to be used as therapy or a substitute for it. DBT is a multimodal, comprehensive treatment intervention, and the skills you will hear us present on House on Fire are only one piece of it. However, once you've practiced these skills, you may not even realize you're using them. It will feel like riding a bike, so hop on and enjoy the ride. It's Avery Galliott. Welcome to House on Fire. We are so happy to be here. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm so, so happy because I have a really cool pairing that we are introing today. Lucy, can you intro the special guest and yourself? I can. Um, my name is Lucy Rooney, pronouns she, her, and I am being joined by my wonderful sister-in-law, Sarah Rooney DeSoy, Dr. DeSoy, who is a child psychologist and will be kicking us off into some DBT skills for back to school for both parents and children. So I'm so happy you're here, Sarah. This is a dream of ours to do this together. I know, Lucy, you're making my dreams come true. And you too, Avery. I'm so happy to be here, Sarah DeSoy. And I can't wait to get started. So just an aside, are you comfortable sharing with our listeners kind of initial impressions, observing and describing non-judgmentally of one another, if you can muster not saying positive judgments? Well, I think I observed that... This is like our favorite thing to talk about. Well, I guess I met you in Pelham. I met you at your parents' house and it was during COVID. And I just, I observed like a warmth in my cheeks. I felt nervous. I could, I could notice that my cheeks were flushed. Um, I felt really warm being around her. She gave me a a really big hug. Uh, She was smiling. I had, Jed, my husband, had described to me what Sarah was like, using a lot of judgmental words, positive judgments. And I I also had those positive judgments of her. And I also, it's funny because we we used our observed describes. We were at a wedding together, Sarah and myself, uh, the other weekend. And we just got really kind of... (laughs) got kind of overwhelmed and we took a little break the two of us and we were like let's use our observe and describe skills and we just kind of like looked around and took a minute and it was actually really helpful so helpful and Lucy I I don't think I would have done that if you weren't there one of the reasons why I love Lucy is because she's really validating and normalizing and I felt so tired we were just go 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 it was in Ireland and I really, I noticed all those should statements, like I should be out there and we should be having fun. And, but I needed that moment. And Lucy let me, she said, let's take a moment to describe how we're feeling. What do you need right now? And I needed some time alone. And then I was able to then have fun. I don't know how much, I think I would have burnt myself out had I not noticed how I felt. I think I would have just acted on the urge of, go and acted on those judgments of should. You know what I also noticed, Sarah, is like, we did a really good job of keeping an open mind, which I think is a lot of of mindfulness too, is like observing how we're feeling right now. 
it would have been easy to say, and, and we might have even said this actually in the moment of like, oh, this is going to be one of these types of nights. Like, it's not going to be fun. And we're going to just have to keep to ourselves because like, we're feeling overwhelmed in this moment. And like, what if we're feeling this way the whole time? And we just acknowledge that we were feeling overwhelmed in that one moment and that we weren't feeling super social. We weren't having those urges to converse with people in that one moment. And then <laughs> cue 30 minutes later, Sarah and I are on the dance floor and running around and we're observing that we're kind of participating more and we're not just kind of watching. And so I think it's mindfulness is also about being open to observing what comes next instead of like predict what's what's going to happen the rest of the night just because you're feeling a certain way right then and there. Yes. It allowed us to fully be present in the moment of dancing and having fun and taking that time. So it worked. And to answer your question about how it like with myself, my sister-in-law, my mom now uses Dill, daughter-in-law, the Dills and the Sills. I, I, I had so many positive judgments because Jed, my brother just said, you will love this super strong, smart, analytical thinker. And she's really warm. And I noticed all those positive judgments too. And I had them as well. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really cool to witness your relationship just in this space to be part of this moment. And thanks for letting me, letting me in and letting me be part of it with my fellow Gator girl. I wanted to to speak a little bit about homework because I didn't really do it. Um, I was meant to practice what? Observing, describing, participating. And possibly in the intervening period, I have intentionally practiced that, but I can't reference it right now. And I actually need a little bit of help based on what Lucy just shared about predicting the future and just sort of allowing the future to be as it is. So we got a new puppy last month, like about a when this release is probably about a month ago. And there was a moment when the puppy pooped in her crate. And then I took the puppy out of the crate and put her on my lap because she was crying. And I just wanted her to not feel what I was kind of anthropomorphized. I was imagining that she might be feeling. And in that moment, I thought this is never going to end. And I'm going to have this life forever of sitting in poop and that really took me out of that present moment, which actually was very connective or might have been had I observed it described all in. I'm kind of wondering how can I participate in this process of being a new puppy owner or how can folks on our you know, listenership participate in being at a state of transition presently? Like, how can I what am I what am I missing here? Yeah, that is it reminds me so much of just being a parent right now and how often I have to use my mindfulness skills or I would like to and I try to when things are just overwhelming and not that intellectually stimulating like um giving her a bath for instance is or I imagine even being with the puppy it's like this is so boring (laughs) I love her I love her right but Every single day is the same thing. And she wants to play the same thing over and over again, again, hide and seek again, again. I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) I notice myself thinking about all the things I'm not doing, right? The multitasking that we are so programmed to do, like it's reinforced. And so anyway, going back to your puppy story, I think that what I I noticed those judgment thoughts, those should thoughts, those 
what am I, you know, oh, I'm just a mom or I'm just a parent right now. This is so boring. Is this going to be forever? And when I just embrace what or and accept what it is, I actually end up having fun. It's not like I'm skiing, but yeah. So I, I think for you, well, Lucy, what do you think about her puppy story? Cause you too. I know. I don't know what this twinning is, Avery. I don't know if I'm Mercury's in retrograde or whatever the LA kids say, but like there is, we just, I just happened upon a pup myself last week and now I'm just fostering this dog. Um, not sure what we're going to do yet about it at the end of the month. And um, it's also been exhausting and I've also had those judgments and it's also usually been around poop or like, you know, some living being not listening to my commands and feeling like it's so unpredictable and I can't control it. And I think, I think spot on, I think being able to observe the facts and your feelings about it without future tripping. So like, I'm observing, I just walked into the house. I'm observing there's poop on the carpet. I'm observing that I'm frustrated, right? Instead of where I tend to go is like, well, we can't keep the dog. If it's going to keep happening like this, I can never do it. This is going to be what it's like every single time I come home. And so when I start, I start predicting how it's going to be, it makes the it takes away from what I'm actually feeling in the moment. So observing is like not only just observing, you know, the facts of the situation, um, like this is what happened, but also like how that made you feel. Yeah. And I think, I think one thing that's really intriguing to me is I've been reading all these in, in gearing up for this transition. I read all these books on behaviorism and animals and the emotions of animals. And so I'm sitting there and I'm actually making a ton of assumptions and making a lot of judgments and then like rapidly shifting between puppy and work and personal life. And so that brings me to thinking about these house skills, which we're really going to frame not from the perspective of a puppy and more from the perspective of back to school, given Sarah's area of expertise. Definitely. Like back to school already. I don't know a person it gives everyone a feeling of anxiety, right? Even if you're not going back to school, seeing back to school ads means the end of summer. It's a transition. It is naturally uncertain. And I've had to have many years of back to school in order to know that it will trigger my feelings of uncertainty and others. So I work in an elementary school as a school psychologist. I also see patients privately. And I work with parents a lot because it's elementary school, but we do run a DBT group, uh, grades three, four, and five for neurodiverse students um, and neurotypical students. So I, I also think DBT skills are helpful for everyone. I don't think I just think these are, I use them all the time, so especially in transitions. I, catching judgments is so important. There are so many judgments that come before school, whether you're in kindergarten and you're starting, this is such a big year, like that's a huge judgment. Uh, this is the most important year. Senior year is so important. I have to enjoy senior year. Or if I get that teacher, that teacher is such a jerk. I don't, I won't be happy if I get that teacher. And parents fall into this too. I thought I would never fall into these, these thinking traps because I do this all day long. And suddenly my daughter is now going into preschool. Okay. Preschool. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to, you know, who cares? Whatever. And you just get wrapped into the judgments of, 
who's her teacher going to be? Is she in this class or this class? Is she going to be with her friends? Oh, if she's not with her friends, she's going to be sad. And so ruminating, catastrophizing, but also catching those judgments. So that's a how skill, right? Like catching the black and white thinking, the good or the bad. This is that teacher is not a jerk. Instead, describing it like that, I overheard my friends say they didn't like that teacher. And it creates that stop before that urge of ruminating. And I want to validate and normalize like it is such a, it's, you don't have control. There's uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty. So where can you create certainty? There are a lot of things that tricks that we do to create some certainty. Sarah's um, talking about right now is one of the three house skills, which is called non-judgmentally. And um, non-judgmentally is a skill that a mindfulness skill that we can use to really observe when we're having judgment. So it's not to say that judgments are good or bad or that we shouldn't have judgments. We all have judgments and we're always going to have judgments and being aware of those judgments. So even kind of like creating a little bit of space between it, there's a difference between saying that teacher is a jerk and I'm having the thought that that teacher is a jerk or um, I'm having this judgment that that teacher is a jerk. Or even better would be describing the facts, like Sarah said. I overheard another student saying that they didn't like that teacher. Um, so it just creates a little, like a pause and a separation between you and that thought. So you're not fused to the thought. You are defused from the thought and aware that there are other judgments um, around that, aside from your own. Yeah, I mean, I think that judgments can be problematic in intensifying emotion mind for certain. I remember someone saying to me, Actually, maybe it was in a training um, that judgment of ourselves leads to shame, judgment of others leads to anger. And so when approaching this new school year, as we create a little bit of distance, I would also like uplift to not judge our judging. It will will happen because we are human. It is how we have been kind of learning throughout our entire lives to speak to one another, to think and so just observing the judgment itself non-judgmentally rather than, oh, I judged, you know, I'm a piece of shit for judging. Like, well, now we've just added some. Actually, Lucy, weren't you just talking about this? The second arrow? Oh, yeah. it's You're not responsible for your first thought. You are for your second thought. So if you have a judgmental thought that comes up, don't judge your judging, but just say, okay, well, what do I want to do with that thought? You know, do I want to uh, feed it and, and give it life or do I want to acknowledge that it's a judgment and then bring my attention back to the facts of the situation? Yeah, because there's that example of drinking the milk. You know, you go into the refrigerator and you drink the milk and you need judgment. To you need to be able to judge experiences to know that the milk is bad, right? Oh, this milk is bad. But yeah, secondly, what am I going to do with it? That's like the, the evaluative versus discriminatory judgment. So like discriminatory judgments of like, is the milk good or bad? Is this alley safe or unsafe? Like, yes, those are judgments and they're helpful where evaluative judgments are not like, she's not a good person. He is a good person. So our next two house skills, so how we might be practicing mindfulness are one mindfully and effectively. So one mindfully makes me think of that concept of multitasking and, you know, sort of this rapid shifting that we might engage in. I used to have the thought when I was in school and sometimes now that if I am doing multiple things at once, I'm just being hyperproductive. It's an incredible 
incredible gift of mine. And the reality is I'm actually kind of letting a bunch of things fall in between the cracks because my brain is going to and fro. This is my experience of it. Um, and it really clouds my awareness of my thoughts, of my feelings, of my urges. So just slowing down and taking time to do one thing at a time, um, one step at a time is is my approach to just being truly aware of what's happening in the moment, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm doing, what I need. School is a place where multitasking is reinforced. Absolutely. Because you're bombarded with multiple things. You have your, you know, for older, you have your syllabus where you have to get everything done by the end of the year. So you're constantly anticipating the future. And it makes it very challenging for even for younger students as they're planning projects or organizing to read a book and really dive into that book. I think really younger students like K, two, three, they just have this amazing ability to play and be fully present at recess, having fun, enjoying themselves. And I, I think we need to practice that a little bit more and not think of it as, um, as wasting time. I have actually a funny story. I, when I first started working at a school, I introduced mindfulness as, you know, something that we could teach children, right? And and that it could be really helpful. And one of the things I got asked to do was lead a mindfulness activity with the board of education, right? So there all these board members. So I ended up with my colleague doing the, um, leading the Hershey's Kiss, slowly eating a Hershey's Kiss mindfulness activity. It's where you smell the Hershey's kiss. You look at the Hershey's kiss. You notice your urges, the memories. You listen to yourself open the wrapper. So I'm doing this it, as I'm leading this activity. I am noticing so many judgment thoughts of we're wasting time. This is the board of education. We're not getting anything done. People feel like they're, I'm, you know, they have to get home to their kids. But in reality, I feel like you've said this, Avery, on the podcast, because I was listening. It's like flexing that muscle. So it's not necessarily about that particular moment, although it could be, right? It could increase joy, especially if you're reading. But it's about flexing that muscle and really practicing it because we're so programmed to multitask. Totally. And and we're going to multitask at times. And like you're saying, Sarah, it's not always like, well, what's the benefit of it right now? The benefit of it is that it increases our muscle memory. Um, and I also, it makes me think, you know, there are certain things that I'm going to just continue to do multitasking because it's efficient, right? Like if I go outside, um, I need to drink my coffee while I'm outside walking the dog and then come back because I don't have enough time to sit and drink the coffee. And I guess I, I could, but then there'd be other consequences, lack of sleep, etc. So there are some things where I'm just like, you know what, I'm not going to do that one mindfully. There are other areas and contexts where it is helpful to be one mindful. And I do get a lot of inspiration from kids thinking about them playing at recess or even on the beach. I'm like, they're not thinking about what they're going to eat for dinner. Like they don't even know what they're doing next. They're just feeling the sand and making a sandcastle and then they step on it and they forget about it. And, and I think there's such children are such good inspiration for one mindfully doing something. When it comes to the parent component, how do you see this showing up from like a homework perspective? I sometimes think that I have parents asking me about my kid just won't do homework or they won't get their work done. They're on their phone. They're da, da, da. How do you, and of course it's case by case. And how do you promote both one mindfulness 
in a child or teen client? And also, how do you promote one mindfulness in in parents? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Because now there are so many distractions. Actually, I have my distractor shield. Okay, so listeners that can't see, Sarah has a piece of paper up with a shield and it says distractor shield. That's so darn cute. And I can't I can't take credit. It's from a curriculum. It's a social skills curriculum called Superflex. And I love it because when we're teaching the kids about uh doing something one mindfully, right? Paying attention on purpose. Uh, we're often distracted and uh, we need things to remind ourselves to get back to task. So I actually highly recommend these, like put post-its out for parents, put up distractor shields on things. I put it on my phone. I'll put it on my computer. You know, kids will joke around and they'll put it on their mind or a picture of the brain because their thoughts will go everywhere. But even practicing it short in short spurts at a time, uh, I think is is really important. Being playful with it, right? Oh my gosh, it's and not judging. You know, trying to observe those judgments. Oh my goodness, I am gonna. You know, I, they have to focus for twenty minutes. No, let's just normalize the fact that there are going to be so many distractions right now and practice. Okay, I'm going to pretend to be. They call it in Superflex brain eater, and brain eater causes distractions and he's a unthinkable so he's like the villain who's trying to distract you from what you're supposed to be doing so let's pretend i'm brain eater and i'm going to come in and distract you and say oh let's play video games and like let's do this fun activity let's go outside i have to tell brain eater stop (laughs) so that's one i really i i think with parents i really like practicing and inoculating kids with and yourself with what's going to happen and so, and therefore normalizing. Bringing us back to the point of all this, like why why be non-judgmental? Why use the one mindfully skill is, as Sarah alluded to, like it it's to increase our happiness and reduce our reactivity. So if we're, this happens to me actually all the time, I'm watching a show um, and then I'm kind of texting at the same time and I miss the benefits of the show. I miss like, this, the experience of watching the show is not as great as if I had put the phone down. Also, like when, when I'm super distracted and doing a million things at once and um, a demand is asked of me or a request is made, I am more likely to be reactive than to just pause and respond. If I'm doing one thing at a time, I'm used to just kind of pausing and being like, okay, what's next? If I'm doing a million things at once and then a trigger comes up, I'm going to be more reactive. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's with like the back to school component. I'm also thinking about Sarah, like how you take care of yourself with all of the demands that are placed on you at this time, you know, the beginning of the year is such a major transition period for you are both a parent and I imagine a lifelong student and you work in a school environment. So there's a lot happening. How do you practice one mindfulness in, in the start of the school year? It isn't, it doesn't come easily to me and it's taken, I've been doing my job for eight, nine years now. And I think now finally I know what's going, I, or I can anticipate that I, this will be a time of, of feeling anxious. I notice my urge to avoid checking my emails, 
avoid talking about school, avoid, you know, turning off the TV as soon as a back to school ad comes out, just avoiding school altogether. And instead, so notice that. And at the same time, find a balance between preparing myself for the school year and not doing the schoolwork. We have all of this urge sometimes to avoid things that are anxiety provoking, right? And and I definitely have that. And so I know students have that too. Like they notice the urge not to go to the first day of school or, you know, to avoid parents. S- same thing. Oh, I won't go to this. I won't start our routine right away. I'll avoid the routine until the first day of school. And it's really helpful to start that routine, you know, a little bit ahead of time. Well, this perfectly brings us into our third how skill, how to be mindful, which is effectively. We use the child uh, DBT manual. So the language is a little different. We call it with our, it's called meeting wise mind goals. What the message really is, is what is your long-term goal that you have set for yourself, which could be, I really want to have a good relationship with my teacher, right? Or I really don't want to get in trouble anymore. I don't want to go to the principal's office. I don't want to lose recess. So that's your goal. You said that you wanted that and that's wonderful. And we can meet that wise mind goal. So um, that's the way we talk about it with kids. Yeah. So effectively, I mean, it's, it's basically the same thing, I guess, just a different word or a more kid-friendly word. Um, and effectively is kind of like, exactly like doing what works doing what is needed like having the willingness to do what is needed for your long-term goals so it's kind of using um value-based making value-based decisions versus emotion mind decisions sometimes we have to do things that we don't want to do for a greater goal so as a kid maybe like if you are late for school mom and dad don't like play video games after school and your goal is to play video games so you got to go to school or for me i don't love i'll just bring it back to the dog because it's the only thing on my mind i don't i'm like trying to find a different example like i know i know i know i have like one personality like my new personality is just having a dog like Okay. Yeah. So uh, effectively, for instance, is like, I love being a therapist and I don't like writing notes and I have to write notes because I need to keep my job and um, continue doing what I love, which is working with people. So there are certain things that we have to do in order for um, us to meet a greater goal. And that's what effectively is all about. So Sarah, I'm I'm curious for you, um, what do you think for parents is the biggest struggle with doing what works. And and what I'm kind of angling is when parents, I'm kind of picturing, and I'm gonna use some judgmental words, I'm kind of picturing like a helicopter parent who really wants their way, the right teacher, my kid needs this snack at this time, blah, blah, blah. Is there a way that you teach or try and influence effectively for these types of parents? One thing, that really comes to mind is that a lot of people, so parents in general, act on their feelings. So feelings are facts. And when it comes to your kids, you're thinking, I have to trust my gut. And my feeling is my fact. And my gut is telling me I'm anxious. And so if I'm anxious, then I have to, uh, 
be on top of my child all the time, micromanaging, making sure, not trusting that they're capable of, of doing certain things or, or asking them to be in a different class. If I don't, I've heard through the grapevine that that's not a great teacher or just acting on, on urges and feelings as taking their feelings really as facts. And so I think that I come across that a lot and I actually really enjoy working with a lot of these parents who allow me to be sort of the stop before the urge, we all become, go into emotion mind and become biased with our own, myself included. And I need someone else to remind me of what the facts are, right? And what your ultimate goal is. Your ultimate goal for your child is, they'll say happiness, but really it's being true to themselves and authentic and and learning and and struggling but being able to help themselves out of struggling becoming true to themselves and capable of being of doing things on their own what are the consequences of helicopter parenting in young children like you've got an elementary school kid and you are just micromanaging and or having like a pretty strong kind of public emotional reaction to public beating in, in the presence of your child to the assignment of Miss, you know, Tortellini versus Miss Fuzili. I like those examples. You're making me hungry. <laughs> Tortellini. <laughs> that came out of nowhere. That was pretty good. There's a book called The Carpenter and the Gardener, and I forget who the author is, but Carpenter we aren't carpenters for children, right? We are gardeners and that really helps. We cannot create what we want. They are not robots. We can, we can create foundations for them to grow into who they are authentically supposed to be. Um, and they're well, their best selves or the version of themselves that is most authentic. And the way that we do that is not by imposing our adult will all the time, because there's going to be natural resistance to that. We set up environments that are most likely for success. And I do like structure and routine. Uh, of course, there are going to be times where structure and routine get well, they fail, but I, structure and routine for children really do help because knowing what to expect and knowing what's expected helps to ease their anxiety and create a secure base. Like we're creating a secure base like in attachment theory. You know, you talked about attachment for children. So teachers are doing this, parents are doing this, but when you create a secure base, it's not being a good enough parent isn't about telling them what to do or helicoptering them or, you know, telling them they're right or wrong, but it's really creating an environment where they can take risks and um, try new things. Yeah. I, I love the way that you describe that. And I love the way that you re kind of framed or kind of dove more deeply, more specifically into the concept of like, be happy um, and the imposition of that um, parental versus the child's own self. Like they come, Francesca would say like, they come pre-programmed. And um, if we try to carve, you know, a David in our own image, we might turn that wonderful David into rubble. And that's, you know, a, a true proposition within the context of, of DBT. For for the biosocial theory, there's this thing called, for kids, they call it me soup. But, but me soup is like, okay, here are things in my environment 
that happened to me. Here's who I am. Here are some personality traits that I have. And that is me. The, one of the things that Lucy first said to me, we were talking about something and I said, oh, I, th this person, when I'm with this person, I end up talking about things that I don't really value or I think I value. I don't know. I, you know, they're more superficial things. And she said, oh, Sarah, you're a rainbow. And that person is just bringing out the red and you have so many other colors. The rainbow. I was like, I love you. <laughs> Marry me. Marry me. <laughs> I was like, I think I'm going to marry Jed now. I just met Sarah. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you have any other general back to school tips for whether you're playing the role of, you know, the student, the parent, um, the educator or administrator or counseling support for our listeners? Children mirror how we feel about them. So if we show confidence in what they're capable of doing, they will feel it. So if we feel confident that they will have a great year and we just even have that attitude, we show that to them or we, we act that way, they in turn will believe in themselves. So for parents, especially, I think just being confident that our child is capable of doing hard new things, right? And noticing that it's a difficult time, because difficult, I'm catching my judgment. It's an uncertain time. And uncertainty naturally brings anxiety. And that's okay. Anxiety is can be adrenaline, and it helps you get ready for school, and you can start doing um, routines and you've done this before. Many of us have done this before and we've been okay, right? We've, we've survived. Many of us have thrived. And what a gift to be able to give kids the ability to see that they can do things or that something's going to be really hard and they end up doing it. That's so cool. For teachers especially, it's, it's an anxiety-provoking time. And they do it. They get through the year and it ends up, you know, they summer comes and I think using these skills throughout the year are really important. Doing things one mindfully, really focusing on one thing at a time, trying not to anticipate the future so much. Not being judgmental of other kids too, trying not to be so judgmental of yourself. So much opportunity as we go back to school for these house skills. So awesome. And it's, it's making me in a weird way, like want to go back to you know, reframing in a way that I'm surprised by because I thought that I was very much done with attending school ever again. I'm noticing the urge to like, you know, pack a book bag and get learning because there are people like you in these spaces that are both advocating for the needs of the child while meeting the parents where they're at and encouraging them to, when possible, you know, flexing those distress tolerance, emotion regulation muscles, and like acting as if being effective. You might not feel so good about the first day of school and you are going to act as if all is confidence. I am noticing that I want to go back to school and be at Sarah's school. I want to go back to school and learn DBT skills from Sarah because I think just everyone would benefit from that. And I think it's so amazing, Sarah, because I do DBT with young adults mostly. And I always am thinking, I wish that kids learned it more. And I know that 
some schools do have um, DBT programs uh, within that context. And I'm just, I'm so proud of you and happy to know that there are mental health providers out there like you who are helping kids learn these building blocks to just living. So Sarah, what would you have listeners do uh, to practice how skills this week? I, in order to catch your judgments, I think it's really helpful to write down a list of judgmental thoughts that you have. And once you have those judgmental thoughts, some people don't even realize they're having them. So I think um, just writing them down and then eventually tallying judgments uh, could be something to practice catching your judgments. To increase some awareness. I like that. Well, Sarah, I hope you have an amazing time in Vermont. It looks beautiful. And I hope you are able to have some one mindful time with Rooney, my adorable niece. And I love you. And I'm so glad that we got to do this together with Avery. I can't thank you guys enough. You guys were wonderful. And this is really my dream come true. I love talking about this. So thank you for having me. Bye. Bye, guys. Love you, Lucy. Bye, Avery. For more information on House on Fire, head to our Instagram page at House on Fire Pod. Shoot us a DM. For more information on Behavioral Psych Studio, check out behavioralpsychstudio.com. Check out our show notes in the podcast description for further reading materials.